everyone. Welcome to the forum. Thank you for coming along tonight. My name is Beth Hannon and I'm the Associate Director of the forum. If you haven't come to one of our events before, if you don't know about us, we are an educational non-profit organisation. What we do is we get philosophers, researchers, thinkers, filmmakers, journalists, all sorts of people to come and talk about their work in a public setting. Our events are always open to Anyone who wants to come, they're always free and unticketed, and we're always very happy to see you. So thank you, as I say, for coming. Uh, people talk about silo thinking and things like that, and in some ways academia is uh, the originator of that kind of uh, phenomenon. Uh, the different disciplines get lost in their own concerns, and there's not so much talking that goes on between them, and indeed between academia and the outside world. So that's what the forum tries to do. We do it with these events, we podcast, or we make recordings of the events for podcasts, which you can, which you can find on our we uh, website, a huge archive of past recordings, and we publish essays to the same uh, effect. Uh, so I encourage you to go to our website and, and see what's there. Uh, if you think what we do is important, I would encourage you to uh, consider donating to the forum, and you'll find a link to our Just Giving page there. Um, it's your support, as well as the incredible support we get from the LSC that makes this kind of thing possible and uh, for which we are incredibly grateful. Just a couple of housekeeping issues. If you could turn off your, uh, the volume on your phones, that would be fantastic. You don't have to turn off your phone completely. In fact, I encourage you to tweet along. Uh, we have our very <laughs> own hashtag, boutique hashtag, LSEFEP. Um, I will be tweeting there. That's what a PhD in philosophy gets you these days. Um, and uh, I'll, maybe we'll see you there too. Um, this is being recorded for a podcast, as I said. Um, there's a roving mic, so if you're going to ask a question, do wait for the mic to find you so that everyone in the room can hear you as well as our listeners in the future. Uh, and uh, I think that's it. Thank you again, and uh, enjoy our fantastic panel. Thanks to Beth. Is the audio okay? Can you hear me at the back? Will you wave frantically if you can't? It sounds like you can. It looks like you can. Great. Um, so welcome to this forum event on film. My name is Shahida Bari. I'm one of the fellows of the forum and I'm your chair this evening. Um, as you all know, this event is on film. Film is made for philosophy, wrote Stanley Cavell. It shifts or puts different light on whatever philosophy has said. And in this panel, we have a filmmaker, a film critic and a philosopher to ask if the language of the camera of, of cinema lends itself to questions of metaphysics and mortality. How could a close-up or a cut represent a concept? And should we consider film itself a philosophical medium? And which other films, this is my big question, giving it away, but which other films we mustn't miss if we want to see the world anew? Our panellists are Professor Maximilian de Gainsford, who has the name of a movie star, um, maybe a mustachioed villain in a Cecil B. DeMille film. Um, happily, he is no less than a star at the philosophy department at the University of Reading, where he's a professor of philosophy. He's published widely on philosophy and literary criticism. He teaches the history of 20th century philosophy, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, Putnam, and McDowell. John, not Andy. Um, <laughs> Lenny Abramson is a film and television director. He's known for his films What Richard Did, 2012, Frank, 2014, and the Oscar-winning Room, 2015. 
He's currently in pre-production for his next project. You might like to ask him about that and get a scoop. He studied philosophy at Trinity College Dublin and foolishly turned down the chance to do a PhD in philosophy at Stanford to go away and make Oscar-winning films instead. What a terrible decision. (laughs) Francine Stock is a radio and TV presenter. Many of you will know her as the voice of Radio 4's The Film Programme. She's also the host of the BAFTA Life and Pictures Strand and she writes about film for Prospect magazine. And you might have paused over, as I have, her excellent 2011 film history book, Inglorious Technicolor. Now, the format in time-honoured fashion, as you know, is that our guests are invited to speak for around 10 minutes on the topic of film and philosophy broadly. Instead of piling up the papers, I'll pause after each speaker and I'll pester and hector them with a question. I'll invite them to talk to each other and after the three um, speakers, we'll try to open up to the audience as soon as we can. I can see that you're already quite keen, so we'll try to do that quite soon. Um, Max, you're getting us started. Thank you very much. Um, can I just say, because uh, I'll never forgive myself if I don't, that this is an absolute dream situation. I, um, I've been teaching film and philosophy for about 20 years, and I sit in a bunker with students and do it. And the opportunity to be able to talk philosophy with somebody who actually makes films and somebody who writes about films is, is a fantastic thing for me. Um, I just hope that some of the questions that I have and that I discuss a lot with students that we're going to be able to talk about tonight. Um, I, I just thought it might be helpful to, to think about some questions, uh, re- really four questions, uh, four big questions, and they may or may not lead to, 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 um, to discussion. W- one question is this, I mean, what, what would it be like for philosophy and film to get on really well? What would, what would we be looking for in good relations between uh, the, the two? I take it if um, film and philosophy are going to do anything that's really, that we're really worth caring about, um, then it really ought to be doing some philosophy. It ought to involve us as critics, and I'm using that term in the broadest possible sense to mean and include those who watch films, those who... Um, make films, watching films critically. Uh, So it's going to have to do both of those things, and it's going to have to do both of those things in a way in which we all care about them. There's quite a lot of philosophy about film, I suppose, where the issues of ontology or nature or reality are so abstract and, and deep that it's hard to see why anybody in a film critical audience would be interested in them. So that's a broad general question. What would good relations between the two look like? Um, secondly, why are they so hard to achieve? Um, I, do, I do think they, it is hard to achieve. If one thinks of the philosophers who've written really memorable works on film, there aren't very many of them. And I don't want to be rude about anybody. Names can come up later on. Uh, we can have disagreements. Uh, For me, Stanley Cavell is an absolutely um, wonderful uh, figure, very much, I think, because of the claims that he makes where you kind of think, yes, but. So he's he's not worried about making very broad general claims and inviting you to to reconsider them. So I, I think possibly one of the reasons why it's very difficult for at least analytic philosophy and film to get together is that two things tend to strike. Either the philosophers will talk about very abstract issues at so stratospheric a level 
that they're of no actual use in trying to grapple with a single averagely difficult film. Either that or, and this can be very useful, uh, philosophers can use films in order to be able to provide very nice, thick descriptions of essentially moral situations. And that that can be incredibly effective, um, both for philosophy and for film criticism. But there's something about that which makes me pause. One could have done that with literature, with, with good literature. So in a way, I think we're missing the particularity of film there. Um, The third question I had is, um, do film and philosophy have as much difficulty getting on as poetry and philosophy? Most of the uh, time when I'm not thinking about film, I'm thinking about poetry, and I think a lot about why it is that poetry and philosophy don't go very easily together, at least poetry and analytic philosophy. I should emphasize that, I suppose. I'm an analytic philosopher. My whole department is an analytic philosopher, philosophical department. I try to read more widely than that, but I have to admit that is my training. Um, so if I've said anything that insults anybody, because I've been <laughs> very wide about philosophy, um, let me take that back now. I, I'm saying some slightly mean things about analytic philosophy. I'm sure those things don't uh, don't generalise. So what characterises some bad relations between analytic philosophy and film? Well, here's one where philosophers and film critics tend to be very polite about each other but don't actually engage with each other. Here's another, where film critics interested in philosophy or philosophers interested in film just think about kind of semi-ghetto areas. They think about just some very specific kinds of film which are just very clearly, as it were, filmed philosophy. Um, Thirdly, and this is the most common, I suppose, of all, where philosophers treat film as raw material for their own philosophical theories. So there's not really, again, any engagement with that material as filmic. It just provides either an excuse to do some more philosophy of ontology, of, of, of the nature of images or representations or the nature of truth in fiction and so on, um, or, to, or, or just merely as illustrations. And, and one could just have stripped off the philosophy altogether, sorry, the, the, the film altogether, and the philosophy would have remained. And the fourth question I had, which is a more positive one, is, well, what in which case can one do to improve relations? And I've just got some, a, a suggestion here, uh, which I, I think, in the same way that film and philosophy, that some light can be shed on their relationship by thinking about poetry and philosophy and on what's difficult or, or hard about those relations, um, I, I think we could possibly look to that relationship to get some clues about what can go right. So for my money, uh, I think film and philosophy could do really well if they started to ask each other the kinds of question, okay, what is it that you can offer to what we are already doing? Are there issues, are there questions, for example, in making a film, which are the same kinds of question that philosophers ask when they do philosophy? And this 
approach which, which I, I kind of call an attuned approach, where what one tries to do is to start out from questions in which one is always already thinking about both the philosophical and the filmic interest. Um, one question is this. How do you organize a film in such a way as to create the maximum possible success in the impact that you want to achieve? Or, you know, to put it in more philosophical terms, the eventfulness of the film. What is it and how is it that you're going to organize your images, your sounds, the scenario, the story, in order to be able to make the point that you want to make? That is a, obviously a quintessentially filmic question. Presumably everyone involved in making a film is interested in trying to grapple with it. But it's also a philosophical one. How is it possible that film, being what it is, can be so organized as to create the events that it creates? Can I stop there? Is that enough to get <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I can, um, I can ask two questions and maybe greedily. Um, uh, I like that you've got the boot into analytic philosophy. I'll do the same as a continentalist. I, 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 I have two questions. First of all, who does do it well? Who are the philosophers that do read film well? And which are the films that don't just furnish uh, a pre-existing philosophical idea but inspire philosophical thought, do you think? Yes. Well, I've mentioned Stanley Cavell. Um, I'd also mention Stephen Mulhall. I think those are two philosophers who do fantastic uh, philosophy of film. I don't think it's uh, any accident that they... It would be actually quite difficult to distinguish between whether or not they're analytics or, or not. They, they're both fully conversant with philosophers on both sides, and they try to write in such a way that they're going to engage with those uh, those audiences. I can think about other examples as well, but I think those are kind of cano- canonical. As to films, it's, it's tough. Um, I mean, so many films, I think, are, are, are brilliant exemplars or brilliant stimulants to, to philosophy. Um, but not just Would it be all right if I asked a question <laughs> or, or, or made a point which, which, you know, because Lenny's here, so I, I kind of... <laughs> Is that all right if I sure. use a couple of examples from films of yours? Because it's an opportunity to actually you can block hear your about ears, what. Lenny, if it's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try not to blush. <laughs> Here's a thought. So, I was thinking about the eventfulness of films and how film and, and philosophy can come together there. One characteristic, I think, of, of uh, Lenny's films, and I'm thinking about the ends of, of several of them, is the way in which you've managed to organise the audience's expectations of something and then undercut it. What's fascinating to me about that philosophically is that in undercutting an expectation, in a way you've done something, but through an absence. So there is this curious thing of how is it possible for the film to have done something when there wasn't actually anything there. An, An example... One is at the end of Frank, when the central character, John, through whom the whole story has been told, uh, is there at the event where Frank himself comes back and, uh, and, as it were, almost back from the dead. And in, in this incredibly moving evocation, you see Frank starting to be able to sing again, even though he's no longer wearing 
the prosthetic head that he'd been wearing before. Are people familiar with the film? I'm hoping I'm describing it enough to at least <laughs> remind you of what's going on. Um, now, you've seen that this character, the central character, John, is, is there in the scene. He's sitting at the bar, but, but you've kind of forgotten about him. You're aware about him in the, in the back of your mind. You're watching Frank, and then the camera turns around, and he's no longer there. The center of the film is not present at the most important scene in, in, in the whole film. So, and that, that's, that's wonderful. It's a kind of a moral moment, because in a way, the central character's journey of discovery has been to discover that he isn't the center of, of this, this whole musical event. He doesn't have any talent, he's, he's, he's the, and, and his attempts to make it work have all failed. So it's entirely appropriate. But it's the absence, and it's, the, it's an expectation of a presence which is then disappointed... So it's a doing, it's an, it's an action, it's a kind of a filmic action. One is present to it when one is watching the film. But what, what, what is one present to? There's, it's an absence, he's not there. And there are other examples in others of your films, but I, that, I've said enough to... Sorry to turn on you already, Lenny, but is that, is that, did you intend that as a philosophical moment, as Max read it there? Or? I mean, I think there's... I do think a lot about... Um, creating expectations which are not fulfilled because you know anytime you tell a story in film you're there are antecedents you know and people have expectations about what sort of story they're watching and I'm always that I'm always sensitive to that and for me the interruption of that expectation is where you might cut through like a conventional experience for the audience to give them an experience which is which is w- with which they are not familiar or which they haven't pre-digested. And, and very much, Frank actually, so there, that's, I had never thought about that particular, the very end of the end in that way, but the, but the entire sort of last third of Frank is an undercutting of a series of, well, tonally it changes, mm. John's... Um, has built up this kind of fantasy of uh, the kind of mad genius fantasy about Frank, and and his the the kind of that conventional approach to to the kind of deification of oddness is something which we're invited to do in popular culture all the time, and Frank is it it mirrors John's disillusion with that kind of fake. Um, picture that he has that's mirrored I think in the audience's experience of the film so Garage which is a film that I made before the three that you mentioned is a film where you and I'll talk about it when I talk but it's about uh, you think you know the central character I'm fascinated um, by films which in a way you know in a certain sort of sense of knowing you know less about the main characters at the end of the film than you than you did at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. You know them in a deeper way in another sense, but in, in the kind of conventional idea of propositional knowledge, you know them less. Yeah. Uh, can I use that to ask, get, get to another question for Max? One more question, which is, there's another scene in Frank that I can think of where um, Frank is in the shower and the band, one of his bandmates notices that the head has <laughs> been taken off and she sneaks into the shower and the, the, the scene builds up because you're going to see real Frank. But then Frank turns around, he's just Frank with the papier-mâché head. head and a shower cap. Yeah. Um, and it's a brilliant ironising of the kind of fantasy of authentic personhood. Yes. But that's a moment where film 
is doing philosophical work better than philosophy does? And so that's my other question to you, Max. Is it the case that we, uh, it's the pretension of the continentalists and the authority of the analytics that we think philosophy is a master discipline and that film should aspire to philosophy, but actually philosophy should be aspiring to film? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. We should have paper mache heads (laughs) and shower cups instead of writing expositions of uh, Habermas or whatever we're doing. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to go that far. I mean, I I suppose a kind of backdrop to what the questions I was asking were was the thought. You know, it's wonderful to get film and philosophy together, but there's a lot of philosophy that isn't film, and there's a lot of film, thank God, that isn't philosophy. (laughs) I mean, just a, a kind of in brackets here, but one of the reasons why I thought it was okay to watch film, I, I watched it ever since I can remember, but I thought it was okay when I discovered that Wittgenstein used to go to watch the films. Um, but then I discovered the real reason why he did, he used it to clear his mind of philosophy. So he would sit as close yeah. to the screen as possible, and he, would, he described it as, you know, the whiteness and the, and, the, and the lightness, actually just kind of giving him a bath, a bath of light. Um, so... Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, let's not write ourselves out of a job quite yet. No. Um, I mean, I don't, think philo- I don't think film necessarily does philosophy better than philosophy does. I do think um, there are many ways in which philosophy can benefit and learn from the ways in which film does it. But apart from anything else, what we're watching in film is a, is a presentation of something. And it's, it, 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 in a way it's important, I think, to distinguish between the film and our experience of it and what we do with it. It may very well be that we do better philosophy as a result of thinking about a film than we do through reading the philosophical investigations or something. But that's reader response rather than yeah. the item itself. The, me- the, me- the take-home is read philosophical investigations. Um, let's hand over to Francine. Okay. Well, I'm sitting here as um, somebody who is neither... Um, a philosopher, nor indeed a philosopher turned filmmaker. So I am just, I'm representative of you and us, the audience. Um, and that is very much the, the angle that I'm going to take. But I am going to start in, uh, in the early 1910s with a small boy who has been taken to a boulevard theatre in Paris, a uh, boulevard cinema, by his mother. And he's about six or so at the time. And his mother takes him there, even though his grandparents very much disapprove of this really rather sordid venue. And he watches melodrama after melodrama with his mother. And he listens to the music. It's nearly always Finkel's Cave or various other or storm sequences. And, and he is completely transfixed. So much so that he's really quite emotional by the end. And he comes out of the cinema saying... That was not me, that young widow crying on the screen, yet she and I had but one soul. And that's something to do with that very particularity of film, that you can, at the one hand, appreciate that you're in the audience and you're watching this thing on film, but at the same time you feel this perfect unity with it. Now, that six-year-old was Jean-Paul Sartre, and cinema runs through his career. He, interestingly, is the person who first commissioned André Bazin, the uh, famous critic and the, uh, the man who begat the whole auteur theory and who, in a sense, elevated the serious study of film. Bazin was first commissioned by Sartre to write for a philosophical magazine. So, you know, it's all there right from the very beginning. I think this idea that, that film isn't an illustration of philosophy 
but it is in its way a kind of philosophy, is, can be borne out by what you see over the last hundred or so years, which is that beyond old systems of religion, beyond possibly even systems of rational thought, film has become the blueprint for the way that we lead our lives. It's become, at one simple level, it has provided our ideas of romance. People even kiss from the way that they saw people start when Gilbert and Garbo began to kiss. People didn't kiss like that beforehand. They didn't fling their heads back and do this kind of thing. But now it's become a far sort of romantic idea. Our ideas of romantic fulfilment are largely shaped by what we see in the movies. I mean, right up to contemporary rom-coms. Um, there's this whole idea of heroism. You know, that how you, how you win something, what's the kind of noble way to win? This does not now come from sort of old epic poems. or great. Uh, it comes from what we've seen in Westerns. You know, from the whole idea that, of the way that Diplomacy, especially American diplomacy in the 1980s, was Star Wars. That whole thing was very much in there, that idea of the evil empire. Uh, the Westerns had run through it a bit before, and they come back. They come back. I mean, George W. Bush was always invoking a kind of Western wave, you know, guys in white hats and guys in black hats. So political discourse is run through with this whole idea. Um, psychotherapy, our ways of thinking about the mind, very much coloured now about things to do with flashback, uh, the revelation of the aha movement, the denouement, the idea that there is something, that there is a key that will unlock, that belongs very much to the kind of plotting and form of film. And, uh, and obviously, you know, far more the obvious things like the way we dress or you know, the kind of people we tend to fall for. Although all those things are very much coloured by over 100 years of watching cinema. Now, early on, there was a sense that cinema was going to be more than just an entertainment, though it clearly was going to be that too. And I'm not just talking about the people ducking when they saw the train coming towards them. Um, Bergson, Henri Bergson, in Matter of Memory in 1896, was very interested in, in the connections between image memory and uh, cinematic memory. And he said... In the future, he thought that cinema possibly might assist in the synthesis of memory. Well, arguably, it has done. Arguably, when we think about memories now, we think about them in black and white. We think about them in Super 8. We think about them on the whole silent, interestingly, because we've got an idea of the way memory looks. In fact, you know, neuroscientists will tell us that our memories aren't really put together like flashbacks that what we do is we put them together afresh each time. I mean, it is a bit more, in that sense, it's a bit more like um, Godry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We, we put them together, but we have thought for a long time that we have a flashback to something, that we remember, um, because we have created a narrative that is like a film narrative. Um, and there are contemporary filmmakers who do this extremely well. Actually, there's, I fairly recently, though many of you may already be familiar with it, fairly recently got to know something of the work of the um, animator Don Hertzfeld, who probably, I think, reproduces closest, as far as I can make out, the way that we actually feel and think, uh, what it's like to be inside somebody's mind. And now this is something that is very much, um, you know, it's, it's all, we, we absorb all of this, Cinema is shaping the way that we think about the world. Uh, 
Umberto Eco, in that famous letter that he wrote to his grandson about the importance of memory, that, you know, in a digital age, you didn't really need to remember anything, but how important it was for your brain to keep memorizing things. The analogy he uses is that when he went to the cinema as a child, they used to have the continuous programs, so you could, you could drop in at 3 o'clock and, you know, you'd see the second half of the film, and then you could stay if you liked it and watch it right the way through. He thinks that life is very much like that in that you know we we ought to know really what came in the first half of the film we should know what happened before today we should somehow commit to memory some of those earlier experiences but he could only express this in terms of a cinema metaphor and I think that idea that cinema has become it has just become a reference point in the way that literature certainly once was, but sadly, possibly, isn't so much today. The dreams of David Lynch or Guy Madden have become our dreams. So the strength of cinema is, and we're starting to touch on it, I think, already, is that actually it's really good when it shows and doesn't tell um, because it invites us to take part. We're not passive. Once the audience is passive and once you've got, on the whole, once you've got people discussing rather obviously philosophical ideas on screen, that cinema is dead. But if it's going to be like Kiarostami said, that cinemas are a window on our dreams through which it's easier to recognize ourselves, and because of the knowledge and the passion acquired in the watching of the film, we can transform life ourselves. It, becomes, it does become a really sort of dynamic relationship. One of my favorite, we were talking about the, the moral purpose of, of films, one of my favorite films from 1938 is Jean Renoir's La Bête Humaine, which mm -hmm. is... Um, a kind of proto-film noir, you're, kind of, you're getting towards that film noir feeling. And it's from one of Zola's Rougon Macquart novels. So Jean Gabin plays Jacques Lantier, who's a, a railway worker, and he becomes a sort of witness to a crime. But the couple who've committed the crime, the very beautiful, uh, the very beautiful young wife, well, the very alluring young wife, realizes he might have seen something. So she sort of strikes up a kind of conversation with him. And when the crime is discovered, when the train that they're on pulls into the station and he's questioned about whether he saw anything, there is a moment when you see that he looks up and the, the focus is slightly off and then suddenly it pulls onto Simon Simone's face and her enormous cat-like eyes and you know and then back to him and Gabin kind of hesitates and in all of that, just that tiny little sequence, you suddenly feel so much, suddenly that real sort of intensity that a whole variety of points of view and a whole variety of moral considerations have come out in this one place. Are you worried that I'm running no, out of time? No, keep going. going. Keep going. I'm keep going. <laughs> because what's happening there is another example of the kind of mysterious journey, which is the thing that film does best, I think. When he's asking you to supply something of your own experience, maybe, or some new insight to what is happening on screen. And the best film takes you to somewhere you never, ever thought it was going to take you. Um, I mean, rather like Marion Crane disappearing some of the way through Psycho. Sorry if that's a spoiler for anybody, but I suspect not. <laughs> yeah. um, rather like Marion Crane being swept out, you suddenly find that this film is actually about something else entirely. And though, that is the moment, more often than not, where I've had my most kind of um, revelatory experience uh, in cinema. And of course, there are filmmakers with philosophy backgrounds, like Lenny, like Terence Malick, like Bunuel. Um, and I'm sure that none of this has been, you know, in any way 
uh, a surprise. They, they would all have known about this, this very thing of undercutting, as you say, undercutting expectations, taking us somewhere else. There is a reason why, in films that really work, where at the end of the film, somebody turns and looks towards the camera, like in 400 Blows, for example. Um, if the film has worked, that does something extraordinary to us. It really gives us that kind of shift, that change. And it's precisely that. that if, if film wasn't doing anything else, if it was just illustrating what we could know otherwise, it wouldn't have that kind of profound effect. So that whole question of what it can do to us next, of course, is an interesting one. Yes. Because we, we've had 100 years or so, we've discussed it, we've looked. But now we're moving into this era where you have high-resolution, high-frame-rate films like the last Ang Lee, Billy Lynn's Long Half-Time Walk, which was not a successful film particularly in itself, but had a very strange effect, if you saw it in the high-frame-rate, of giving you such intimacy with the characters and putting you almost inside their heads in one or two cases, which you could argue the good film always does, but there was something strange, really transforming about this Virtual reality, which I've seen quite a bit of, is now getting to a very um, sophisticated stage too. Uh, Inyaritu has just shown a film at Cannes, um, which has had a very strong reaction from people as a kind of empathy machine. This is, again, literally putting us in the, the picture. And that, I think, is actually going to have quite a, you know, quite a dramatic effect on the way that we start to think about our relationship to other people. There's, there's a quite well-known um, virtual reality film in which rapist or potential rapist and victim get to change places, which is, again, something else that one could think about as, as the potential for all of that. So you mentioned um, Cavell and Mulholland and philosophy in action – Philosophy in action, again, it suggests it's a kind of secondary thing. Maybe it is just philosophy. I mean, I know that that's not... Um, you know, philosophy in action, again, suggests that it is playing out some systems of philosophy. Maybe this, we just came up with something that we needed, an art form that we needed that was going to fulfill a number of these things that, you know, that give us, as OED would say, knowledge or study that deals with the ultimate reality, and quite often that is beyond words. And I think that's what's so, so sort of special about it. Um, I don't know if you've seen Alien Covenant, any of you, but there is a prologue at the beginning of Alien Covenant in which sort of the formal ambition of the film is kind of set out. Um, but in fact, the true effect of it is nothing to do with people perhaps articulating these things explicitly or even to do with the themes or perhaps even the symbols of the film. If you want to talk about the meaning of existence, you can do it in any kind of film if it's well enough done. It doesn't have to be... It can be from Pixar to Pasolini. It can be either on an iPhone or in an IMAX. Sorry, you can tell the argument's wearing a bit thin when you start <laughs> to use alliteration too much. But um, there's, I suppose that there's a whole sort of idea is that what is it that gives us this little kind of shift, this idea that takes us somewhere that nothing else can do. And I'm going to go back, I'm going to finish off by going back to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who said what, I'm sorry, I'm going to be translating as I go along, so maybe I'm a bit <laughs> halting, but sorry. what he's saying is coming out of a, a cinema when he was that little, he used to end up with a kind of malaise. He used to feel supernumerary to things because 
the whole experience of watching on the screen had revealed to him the total gratuity, nudity, and unintelligibility of existence. In fact, it had revealed to him contingency, and we know where that led. So I would say that, to paraphrase that sports agent, Jerry Maguire, who, as you probably know, stole this phrase from somebody else, film possibly completes us. (laughs) Thank you, Francine. On the one hand... um you, you were very modest in saying that literature, film is like literature, a reference point. But I don't think you were saying film is a, a reference point at all. I think you were saying it's much more than a reference point. You were saying that it is fundamentally contouring the way we see, partly because it is something we see, something that if we are exposed to film in the way that we are in our culture, that it must do something to our perceptual faculties. And if any of you have seen Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, it's a rotten film, except that it is remarkable for that saturated colour. And I remember coming out of the screen, you will know better than I, it's how many... Um, frames per second, 120? 120 yeah. And it's yeah. 4D and terrible film, Lenny. Don't be inspired I, by it. <laughs> I, I did. I actually read the book before. Yeah. I, well, I was for various reasons, but I, I haven't seen the film. No, I haven't. Oh, I but when oh, you yeah. walk out of the cinema, I walked out into Oxford Street and reality Felt a bit seemed, flat. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's a hyper reality. So that seems to be what's close something. to people as well. <laughs> well, not without causing trouble. Yeah. <laughs> not on Oxford Street. <laughs> <laughs> but that made me think that the the, the kind of the, the work of film is not just, or at least the thoughtful work of film is not just the, the director, forgive me, Lenny, it's not just auteurs, it's lighting, it's cuts, it's the technology. Oh, and yeah. so does this mean we need to start thinking about, if we're looking for the thought of film, we need to think about light in a Malik film as a kind of thought? Yeah, and certainly if you look at early film, I mean, the, the effect of, of lighting is extraordinary, uh, you know, and, and especially when you don't have dialogue, that you can see so much, even even something, you know, as well, well, Caligari, design and lighting there is saying so much. Oh, no, it's absolutely... And you're right. I mean, I was being... I, I was, by saying it was a reference point, it is more than... I think it's more than a reference point. I think it is a framework, I think, that people now talk to each other um, in terms... Either sometimes little snippets of things they don't even realise. Um, you know, those stories of Vietnam veterans having false memories of things much later that they'd seen in The Deer Hunter, and, um, which, of which there was absolutely no record of anything similar having happened. And I think sometimes it is difficult for us to remember. Um, I was rather shocked fairly recently to see uh, an old 1940s film and to realise that a man had made, who was a bit older than me, who made a great declaration of loved me when I was 17 and I was really impressed by had taken this line <laughs> from a film and taken almost an entire speech. And I just did it make your heart? Well, it sort of did. It kind of made me a bit, feel a bit better about what happened later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that you mentioned um, Jerry... Hopefully it wasn't a line from Jerry Maguire, but um, uh, you had me a hello, um, goodbye. Um, but uh, I love that you mentioned Jerry Maguire because it's not just this elevated register of film, is it, that we're talking about... I I mean, Bambi is a film that might change how you think about consciousness, animal mm. consciousness. Um, or loss. Or loss, right. So it's not just Hitchcock and Hanukkah. There is a kind of serious and grave, maybe even levity as well, a, a kind of thought in all levels of film. Would that be right? I think, yeah, absolutely. And it's to do, partly to do with power, isn't it, and, and the effect that it has, um, and the fact that film can play... 
across the world and have an extraordinary effect. I mean, I don't love Titanic, but you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't love it, but I can see why it, you know, I can see from, from Cameron's skill why it would have that effect that you would find, you know, a whole area of Kabul that was called Titanic Town or whatever that, you know, that, yeah. it, it, that it doesn't, it's not culturally specific. Is there, is there something, unex, is there an unexpected film or a cinematic experience that's flowered in a profound way for you? So um, I'm thinking something really low culture, Francine. I'm poking uh, in the gutter here. <laughs> <laughs> Not just your pronouns uh, and your uh, palicas. Well, I mean, this isn't low. Well, except that it is quite fun. The dance at the end of Fellini's Aiden Hall. Okay, it's not low culture, but it is a dance. <laughs> but it is a dance. And I, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it did, it had a very odd effect to me. I watched it, I'd seen it before, years before, and then I watched it again in my 30s, and suddenly something about my own family became clear to me. Ah. Yeah. Just suddenly. I mean, <laughs> not that they danced, and not that <laughs> my father was like Marcello Mastroni or anything like that, but, but there was something there that I suddenly thought, you know, um, and so I suppose. But in terms of kind of popular stuff, ooh, I mean, in, in some ways, almost too many. You know, um, I I love the way we were, which is like the worst. Kind of, <laughs> but I love it, and it still works. There is a bit yes. where Streisand is lying under Robert Redford um, after their first night of passion, but he was so drunk, and she says. You do know it was me. Oh, it's me, yes. You do know it was me. Yes, heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, Max, did you did you want to come in? Did you have a response or any thoughts? No. Thinking of low culture films, low culture. which has stimulated. I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm scrabbling in the rubble, but it's just too irresistible to ask those questions. Lenny, well, should we hand? Oh, Francine, and I were, we're talking just just before about the the effect of being at a school where they had a very small number of films, which they would play on wet days um, <laughs> endlessly and and there were several films I, that I got to know well about three <laughs> incredibly well one of them was The Great Escape you know which is an appalling <laughs> film in many ways but it, 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 once you've seen a film several several times like that in, in a way whether it's high or low doesn't really rate anymore you start to get interested in editing Lighting. Yes. Where was the camera? Why did, was it done that way? Shouldn't that have seen have been longer? You start to become, you enter into the role of the filmmaker, and to some extent, of the you know, you, yeah. you, there's an active criticism part, which, to my money, is actually the closest, as I say, to, to doing philosophy. So, Franklin talked about the revelation side. I think I would, which is true, that philosophy is supposed to start in wonder. And, and film can do that really effectively for us. But uh, the, the more nuts and bolts side is that film, by being a very studied organisation of experience, uh, can raise for us questions about how experience is organised and, yeah. and whether it should be in the way that it is. Yeah. I was thinking about Pixar films, about how... Um, just not derided Pixar films, but there's a certain patron, a kind of patronage about Pixar films that they charm parents and delight children. But there isn't anything of substance. But actually, a Toy Story always makes me think about consciousness. What it, mm. what possesses consciousness, and what kind of forms do consciousness take? And so there's a kind of probing maybe to happen in Wall-E, the first forty-five Wall-E. minutes. Of yes, Wall-E. right. Heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Lenny, let's hand over to you. 
Um, what's funny, thinking about the... Um, we were talking about the... You know, the... the all of these topics. I'm, I'm, I'm six weeks off making another film, and so I'm in the middle of all that stuff. And I feel sort of like a person who's going to get in and drive a car, and I'm afraid now that as I start talking about this, it'll be like I've opened the <laughs> bonnet and I'm right in the mechanics of it, and I'm not going to be able to sort of step back into the... But in fact, it's, it's, it's really... That's a, that's a very glamorous um, analogy in that it suggests the making of the film is the racing driving part. In fact, it's really the other way around. You know, you start... It, it is, as Max said, a kind of nuts and bolts activity. Like, it's a series of decisions. Uh, all of this stuff eventually has to come down to what happens out there, where do I put the camera, how do I record it? And from those kinds of, you know, easily specifiable uh, decisions, this enormous complexity can arise. Um, so let me, let me now dip into what I was going to say. Um, so I'm going to talk about, I think, just for the hell of it, the ways in which the two activities, the kind of quintessentially philosophical investigation differs from, from the, the business of making a film or what it is about a film or how it is that I feel one as a filmmaker can get towards something valuable and, and actually philosophically interesting. So the, 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 the quintessential philosophical enterprise is to, is to say true things, you know, to... to, to to get knowledge, to gain knowledge, to understand the truth of something. In a funny way, as a filmmaker, and I alluded to this in, one of the, in my previous comments about, about um, knowing characters less at the end than you do at the beginning, a kind of a, a stance that I try to take is a, is a, is a stance of deep uncertainty um, and a kind of commitment to not fully understand. And this leads to interesting questions about what it is that constitutes realism in cinema. For me, um, and I'll, I'll give an example. So in, in this film garage that I was discussing earlier, we meet um, a character who uh, we kind of recognize. He's a seems like a, a kind of limited character. He lives, he works in a, in a crappy, uh, failing garage on the edge of a town. And the only way he gives himself any sense of, of permanence is by constantly narrating what he's doing. He tells you, you know, he talks to himself all the time. He says, right, what do we do? And I know people like this, people who sort of, who, who constantly talk about the minutiae of what they're doing, and that's a kind of self-affirmatory uh, process. And we think we recognize him as the, as the village idiot character that we've seen before. And yet, if the film does anything, if it works at all, I think at the end it becomes impossible to say who this person is. And yet your sense of encounter is deeper. So the thing in cinema that for me gives, that mirrors, matches, corresponds with reality is the not fully possessed. It's the thing which is bigger than the story I am telling about it. And one of the big problems in, in sort of conventional movie making, and if you read the Robert McKees or the, you know, the screenwriting gurus, Film gets re reduced to a kind of a, seri a, a sort of a grand equation in which you plug in a character or characters who have identifiable problems, for example, or you know there are things against which they come up, um, and they have uh, needs and desires which are somehow thwarted, and the film is a sort of working out of how those things get overcome. 
then all you're left with is a solved equation. And the thing about reality is that it is always bigger than you can hold. And the fascinating thing about cinema for me is the way in which you can mirror that in an entirely artificial creation. Okay, so how do I, uh, to unpack that a little bit. Um, when I, you know, the illusion of the third dimension, which is some, sort of analogous to this, like that, you, that through shading and, 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 and you can have this two-dimensional screen, but it, it feels like this. The reason I hate 3D is that we've always had 3D. I mean, 2D is 3D. 3D is a kind of game for me. Um, but, but the illusion of depth in terms of, of, of the sense of, of deeper meanings is something that filmmakers, at least for me, I get it by deliberately, I try sometimes to deliberately obscure not in a, in a, I mean, in terms of literally where I am and, the, you know, what it is that I can see. That, that's sometimes a three-quarter back shot where you can't see the character's eyes. It's more moving than the close-up from the front. Mm. So the deliberate withholding, of the, the, the disallowing of completion is the thing that I find, I mean, that's the thing that gives the kind of taste or flavor mm. of the true. So... Um, when I, when I, uh, so when I started out making films, so there's an analogy to the method, uh, actually to the sort of social and managerial dimension of filmmaking. Of this, uh, there's an analogy of, to this idea of not knowing. And that is, like, when I started making films, I thought that the director's job was to know absolutely everything when they walk on set, right? So that, because the, the experience of making a film is an experience of being asked millions of questions constantly from the moment you arrive it's people coming showing you things saying is this okay where do you want to start you know uh, and Bob Hoskins directed a film and, and, and famously said he felt it was like being pecked to death by pigeons <laughs> and, and there isn't right so, so there's all that stuff going on and, and, and so the, the sense is that you are to be the oracle right and, and actually you do have to know what you want and know what you're doing in really concrete ways otherwise the whole thing grinds to a halt but if, if you take that too seriously, you kill, the, the, you kill the, the kind of the dimension of discovery that must continue to exist on set. So I have learned, instead of walking on to, to set and saying to the actors, okay, so this is what we're doing, this is where we start, this is how the scene unfolds, I adopt a kind of slightly bemused... Um, hunting for uh, approach. And what that, even if I really know in this scene what I desperately want to get to, it's always better if I allow it to, if I allow, and I sort of give the minimum, minimum instructions and say, okay, well, just for the sake of it, let's just start it like this. But I want it to start happening. I want the scene to be played as quickly as I can because then I can react to it as if I didn't know everything about it. And there's this dual, this thing I'm really interested in is this dual attitude that I try to preserve. I, I, I both have ideas about what I want, I have planned, I've thought about, I've done drawings and I've done all those things. And then I somehow have to use that to get stuff happening that I'm not completely in possession of and then react to that. And so the model of the director as the knower of everything or of the person who must impose a vision is a really dangerous one. 
If you're lucky, at the end of the whole process, when you see the film, something of your strong initial instincts about the project will have taken root and will actually be there. But in the moment, the job is to encounter what actors are doing to, to even arrive in a location and discover that it doesn't quite work the way you want it and that that's in itself a positive thing. So, so yes, the difference between the philosophical endeavor and the, and the business of filmmaking for me is a kind of a rejection of or, a, or, or a, a sideways looking relationship to the idea of knowledge and of, of knowing what's happening. And um, yeah, so, so, the, so the advice I've done some teaching recently and the advice I've given to most, mostly directors is rule number one, shut up. <laughs> so do not walk in there and immediately start demonstrating your mastery over the material because what you will probably do, especially with actors, is crush the thing that they might do that you could not anticipate. So, so that's the, the analogy. That's the not knowing part in the doing. The not knowing part in the... In the, in the result is the deliberate obscuring of the kind of suggestion of otherness of things that we can't know or that are bigger than the frame which is this which gives you that feeling of, of uh, because that mirrors reality the other thing that I would want to talk about um, is well m- you know my added, uh, like the moral dimension of this going back to that example of, of the village idiot character from Garage is that the unfathomability, and I'm an, my background is in analytic philosophy, so I'm not, you know, I'm a materialist in, in the crude sense. I mean, I believe in, I don't, I don't have, I have no sort of uh, belief in, in meaning-giving other dimensions of any kind. But, but I still think about human beings as fundamentally unfathomable because of the actuality of their experience. So in, in, in Garage, we end with a shot of this horse looking directly into the eyes of a horse. And for me, the power of that image is that if you look at, in, into the eyes of an animal, there is undoubtedly something there. There is, there is a what it is like to be. And yet, I can't know what that is. And for me, that's, that relationship, that, that is a humanizing relationship in, if I can preserve it in my interactions with other people. And specifically in the context of this conversation, in a film. Mm. If there is a sense of the... Un- and, and that's an amazing thing, if it works. Because we are making it. It's written. These are actors. It's constructed. It's, it's made. And yet, if it works, there is, you can sort of find that, that truth about the, 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 un- the unholdable, unpossessable otherness and truth and reality and presence of another person. Um, just f- finally, I'll say, um, th- like, th- are there films which have specifically philosophical, have had a specifically philosophical, so anticipating your question. <laughs> one, one film which I love is, it's another Fellini film, La Strada. And there's a scene in La Strada which I think is as close as a, I mean, and I'm, I'm less interested, uh, there's two things, I'm less interested in films which make direct philosophical statements, but there are one or two, and this happens to be one um, which has had a, an effect on me. There's a scene where the Julietta Messina character who is being treated so badly by Anthony Quinn and feels that she has no value. She's dedicated her life to him, but, but he doesn't even notice her. And she talks to a tightrope walker 
and he picks up a pebble, and, and he says, uh, if, if this pebble has no meaning, then the universe has no meaning. And I've always, that for me is very beautiful, and it's, it's, it's psychologically motivated within the, the story, but it is actually, from I think, a pretty powerful way of thinking, which is that um, people say, well, without that other dimension, how is it that, that our lives are not just stuff? And the answer is stuff. If stuff doesn't have meaning, nothing does. You know, the taste of something or the, the experience of being in a room is as existentially, gravitationally dense as any universal huge thing. Um, the, the last thing I want to say is um, about perhaps now leaving aside my kind of celebration of not knowing what is unique, I think, as you know, we're talking about film and philosophy. Film is what's unique as film. Inter, uh, what is unique in film as an art form is that it somehow seems to us very close in its, you know, phenomenologically very close to what it's like to, you know, a film of of of, of you know walking in somebody's point of view through a scene kind of is recognisably not that far, or so we think. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you about memory, and I think this is true about about most of our, what we regard as sort of good representations of experience. However, you know, a tracking shot on Steadicam through a, through a room is not a million miles away from what it's actually like to walk through a room. And yet there is, of course, artifice and abstraction. But it is the way in which the artifice in movies is hidden. In literature is most definitely a kind of there is a remove, there's the business of the words and the hearing of them and the imagination that attends to them. But film seems to be a bit like what it's like to be alive in the world. And, and yet there is a distancing effect. And it is the kind of closeness but not identity of the experience of watching a film to the experience of being in the world. That It's that gap in which lots of philosophical kind of, um, uh, in which one is motivated to think most philosophically. Thank you. Um, I think um, as you were speaking about this uncertainty, you were talking about a kind of abstention or a reticence or um, a reserve, mm. um, which I think you're right is a dynamic completely in contradistinction or different to the kind of propulsive impulse of philosophical deduction and exposition. Mm. Um, uh, and I think that's really interesting. And it reminded me of the end of your film, What Richard Did, when you don't know if R Richard has said he's going to confess, but you don't know if he has, if he will, if he'll ever come to terms with it. Um, and there's an open-endedness. And I was also thinking about... Um, the Polish film a few years ago, Pawlikowski, Ida, which yeah, won the yeah. Oscar for foreign film, where the Catholic nun goes with the Jewish aunt and they dig up, they find the grave of the baby and she takes away the remains and you don't know what's in the box until you hear the sound of the bones. Mm. Um, and there's a kind of reticence there and it's terribly evocative and there's an openness. But I wonder then what happens to... How do you write about... How do you respond to something like that when there is obscurity or occlusion or withdrawal? 
Is it? Do, do we just end up speculating? As a is viewer, it, yeah. Well, it's it's not because that there's one. I mean, that you know, you can have a kind of thriller which you can in in one on one dimensional you can you can see films which are designed to raise a bunch of questions like well. It, you know, it leaves it open and you can go and discuss it afterwards and was it really that person or was it really that person. But I think that at a deeper level, you need a certain amount of that ungraspability to even have a proper encounter with the film, for it to even feel like it's got anything to do with... I mean, there are, of course, lots of different ways to work, and, uh, but, but the, the, you know, what it is about a Dardenne film when it's good, it is, it's the, you know... It is the lack of, of a kind of psychologization of the characters. I mean, in The Sun, for example, which is my favorite Dardenne Brothers film, there's an amazing scene uh, where the... Well, all of the scenes involving the father who's lost the boy and is now forming a relationship with the boy's killer. It is, it is not interesting to talk about him psychologically. There's a more fundamental, and how is it possible to to believe that there is a a thing there, and yet that thing is un, is not describable? You can't have an indescribable truth in literature because the business of literature is description, but you can have a kind of indescribable, but nevertheless absolutely hard. You can't not feel it. Sort of encounter in, in cinema that I find is that's what excites me. I've got a million questions for you, but um, I shan't um, overreach as chair, and I will open up to the floor. And so, because I, I can sense palpable there are questions. There are. Um, we're going to take three at a time to try and get squeeze in as many as we can. So, the gentleman at the front there, can you raise your hands nice and high so I can see them? There's another gentleman at the end there, and there's a lady at the back with the glasses. So if you could start, thank you. Hi, you're Matt Head, editor of Essential Films. Um, I'm kind of going to pick up but towards the end of what Lenny was saying, and uh, Francine kind of corny very well by saying that the most successful films are the ones that are showing and not telling. So if we take Charles Chaplin's City Lights and uh, uh, Amar Kord compared to, let's say, the cerebralization of Tuva Bian by Godard or Million Dollar Baby by Clint Eastwood, we do notice that better films work where the director is not creating a cerebral character in a way and a cerebral message that is philosophically given to the audience. So to a degree then, aren't we not talking about film as being successful very much as an aesthetic art form? And isn't there a danger that when we start talking about philosophy of film that we're not actually confusing it with aestheticism? And isn't the role of film as philosophy closer to discussing issues of representation of reality, uh, concepts of how is representation can be described for film, etc.? And the question over there? Yes, so the question is for uh, Mr. Abrahamson. Um, It seems like uh, many of the films which are coming out at the moment, which have a, shall we say, a a philosophical dimension or which are serious films, are coming from places which um, do not put the onus on um, making a profit. So I'm thinking of Eastern Europe and Turkey, um, Asia perhaps. Would you say that it's, it's difficult to get to raise the, the finance required if you have to have, if you have to get it when you're pitching to show that the entertainment content. And the question from the lady up there with the glasses. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
I just had a question. I think Francine started to talk about it, about political discourse in film. And a lot of philosophers write about violence in politics. And I'm thinking of Zizek or Walter Benjamin or Hannah Arendt, and specifically about the relationship of law and violence. And I was wondering what you think film has to say philosophically about violence and philosophies of violence in terms of um, films like Zero Dark Thirty, where there was a lot of uproar about the depiction of torture. Great. Any takers? One about aesthetics and representation, one about non-profit films, one about philosophies of violence in film. I'll talk about the non-profit. The profit, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a dirty old business. I mean, you know, the, the great thing about philosophy and the thing I sometimes miss is, is that monkish um, ideal of just having something that you can, that you're, you're obliged to think about and you're just, you know, you can spend, you go where the thought leads and... And, I mean, of course, that's an idealization of academia. There's huge pressure to publish, and there are sexy topics and ones that aren't and everything. But generally speaking, it's not as um, money... It doesn't take an awful lot of money to sit and think. It takes an awful lot of money to make a film. And it isn't a... a, 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 You know, countries like uh, Romania, which have produced some amazing cinema in the last sort of 15 years. Turkey is another good example. Um... Although if you dig down, there's probably only one or two people in each of those countries who are doing the work, but nevertheless, it is happening. It is extremely difficult to pitch a serious film in English, in, certainly in the States. But it's actually, I think the failure is on the part of us Anglophone filmmakers because if you're prepared to make a film for not a lot of money, then if you have any sort of reputation, it's not that hard to do. So if I was prepared, if I wanted to make a film that was going to cost half a million dollars or a million dollars, I could, at the moment, just luckily in the position where I could probably make anything I want. And I do have that debate with myself all the time. And, you know, it's hard sometimes, given that it's also, you know, there are ladders placed with, with shiny lights at the top. And the, implica- the, the sort of impulse to climb, you know, well, people, even the whole notion of a career and of building it, and you know, it's very hard not to be sucked into that. In English language, I think maybe the proximity of us as sort of culturally to the states makes it very hard not to feel the magnetic pull of that. And I try to resist it, but probably could resist it more. <laughs> Um, Right, well, on the question of violence and and political discourse, I mean, this is a huge, huge subject, which goes right back to, you know, very early on in film, and as as I was saying before, you know, embraces ideas like um, the Westerns. I mean, Zero Dark Thirty is an interesting example, because I don't think Catherine Bigelow, the director would have been in any way discomforted by the discussion about the use of torture in that film because I think, I may be wrong, but I have a feeling that was exactly what she wanted to do. Um, And um, that the use of it there and the way it's depicted is intended to be troubling and is intended to be provocative. Um, And... Indeed, you know, the sequences that, that came before in other films and, for example, the torture sequence at the beginning of Battle of Algiers, which Zero Dark Thirty 
takes quite a lot from um, in, in that sense, apart from the fact that obviously there's sort of evidence as well in, in between. I mean, that, that's, another, that's a very interesting... Battle of Algiers is a fascinating example of a film that would seem to be almost documentary um, that is made with a kind of plurality of um, point of view, uh, if you like, partly because of just the way that it was originally, the way it was set up, the way the screenplay is written, the way that members of the... Um, FLN in, in Algiers were actually involved in the filmmaking. I mean, so that, and yet it's not an easy film to, at the same time, it's still not an easy film to watch. I mean, good violence shouldn't be easy to watch. I mean, the problem, I think, I think a really interesting question about violence in film is actually how balletic and beautiful it has become mm. in, in most cases over the years, when in fact anybody who's even been in the smallest, in the smallest bit of violence knows that it's neither of those things and it's usually kind of clumsy and awful and sudden. Um, so film has, if you like, created a kind of norm for what violence looks like, which may have sanitised it and made it far more acceptable over the years. Max, did you want to come in? Yes. Uh, um, I've been watching a lot of early Ken Loach films, uh, the black and whites from the 60s, just recently, I mean, partly because I wanted to think about Lenny's film Room in the context of... Kathy Come Home. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a um, really tremendous, spiralling film of, of, um, of a young married couple who have who are gradually move through a series of rooms, essentially getting worse and worse. And, and it ends, of course, with um, with, an, with an appalling scene of violence, uh, where but the camera's way up. It takes place in the station, and uh, social workers take the mother's child away. Uh, there's nothing balletic about it. It's extremely... It's eviscerating. It really is absolutely amazing. Uh, beautifully done. Uh, but, as I say, I was partly interested in it because, um, because of, of thinking about that in, in connection with Lenny's film, Room, where you just have a single room. Uh, so you don't, you're not moving through... A, 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 well, you're not particularly moving through a series, I suppose, after the rescue. You, 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 you get into that, that other space... But, but, but equally violent, uh, and, and, and various forms of the violence, um, not at all attractive, not at all glamorised, not at all... Um, yeah. I was just going to say, it's interesting that Cathy Come Home was a big part of a thing. I, I made a series of, which are hard to see now, but four one-hour films for TV called Prosperity with Marco Halloran, who I collaborated with on the first two films. And one of them is about a girl who wanders around a city with her child. And there were lots of early Loach. I mean, early Loach, big influence on those, right. those films for me. Yes. Yeah. And the Adam and Adam Paul, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, course, yeah. More questions? So, there's a gentleman on the second row there. Um, one here. And then uh, one there. Um, I wanted to hear from all three of you actually about your opinions on whether there is a fundamental distinction between documentaries and films apart from the obvious one being non-fiction and fiction and um, the question is motivated by Terence Malick's The Tree of Life because I see that film as somewhat of a crossover between documentary and film with the presentation of 
sort of like creation and the universe, etc., being more on the documentary side and in the presentation of the family being filmed, but the way that there is a sort of mirroring of the two narratives there. Good question about genre. What was the question here? There's a gentleman at the very front row there. Um, I was just wondering how important you think it is for the audience to get what the filmmaker intended rather than maybe coming away with their own ideas. I'm thinking of someone like Stanley Kubrick, who a lot of people seem to think his films are to do with the Umilati and stuff like that. And whether or not that's actually what he intended or people are just kind of making up their own mind about those things. And there was another question. Um, what for me was interesting was nobody mentioned the most glaring way in which movies eventually will revolutionise, epically revolutionise philosophy and science. Uh, what one has to stress is that at the moment there is no systematic culture of imagination whatsoever of how images work and of how we reason imaginatively about the world. What we have is a systematic culture of text, uh, language, maths, and logic. And philosophy is basically the philosophy of text. And as far as philosophy is concerned, the basic human condition is that of an academic in a room reading a text, cut off from the world, agonizing about whether the text is true. Um, Sounds like one for you, Max, that one. And, <laughs> it's really interesting. Now, question what, about if I'm just finished, what, what, he says what the that out, if one asks philosophers there, you know, where does images come into all this? Okay. It's secondary. Now, the reality is this. The basic unit of consciousness, the basic unit of thought, the basic unit of reasoning is what you're looking at right now. Mm. What you're looking at right now is a scene in a movie. Consciousness is a movie. That's why Lenny said, you know, it's what it's like to be alive. You bet it's what it's like to be alive. And that will completely shatter. One consequence, I won't go into it because it's a long thing, analytical philosophy will be destroyed. <laughs> that <laughs> ominous, terrifying note, the, uh, the bells are tolling for the Front for Human Philosophy. So there was a question about the documentary and film distinction, Terence Malick, one about intention and freedom is Kubrick's from about the Illuminati, and one about the imagi imaginative reasoning and the basic unit of consciousness as vision, or the image. Any takers? <laughs> is Kubrick about the Illuminati? I wanted, I wanted to, to know. I wanted to talk about the documentary thing, but I feel okay. I have to talk. No, 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 you no. can talk about anything you, you like. Well, the, the, the documentary question I thought was fascinating. The, um, I, I think this is true. Uh, so Alain René, when he was making Hiroshima Mon Amour, he, was, he originally wanted to make a, a film, essentially a documentary about Hiroshima, and, and for various reasons that didn't come off. And he incorporated his images into the start of the film, which is then this wonderful, um, um, you know, partly romantic film, but partly a meditation on life and death, and, and is tremendously philosophical. And the blend between the two of those is, is wonderful. Um, it, it, if I could also just say as a, as a footnote to the Battle of Algiers, the first time I saw that, this is absolutely true, I watched it on television and I hadn't been intending to. I came in with a friend, we switched it on, it was halfway through the film, and I thought it was a documentary. Mm. And interesting, it was interesting then to discover, until you know, the film had got a lot further and then it became, uh, hold on, how, how did you get a camera yeah. in there? That would be very difficult. And then I began to realise, and, and there are interesting issues about whether or not the images are more powerful when you realise that they were 
to some extent scripted and, and, and artfully depicted for you. I mean, if I could just very quickly say, in which case, to the comment that, to, to the, our, our last question, it can't really be true that we are now in a film because what we're now in is not scripted, it's not directed, it's not carefully contrived and artfully controlled. That, and, and that is the nature of film. Um, I could... A couple of thoughts. I mean, the documentary thing is a huge one and really interesting. And when documentaries began, they weren't all that documentary in that, you know, lots of lots of the action was... It takes a long... It's tough then to set up cameras and you couldn't just go and... The idea of the sort of fly-on-the-wall thing is, is relatively recent. So documentaries have always been constructed and constructs. And the interesting thing about Malik, actually, if you look at the dramatic parts of the later Malik films, I think... I sometimes think of them as documentaries in the sense that the actors have absolutely no idea what they're doing and, and they're sort of being observed in their, in their confusion and you know there's a kind of it's, a, it's an interesting you know it's a, it's a sort of interesting one two, two things just to, to your question I, I, I think the filmmaker has to live in their, in the, under the probably illusory belief that their intentions are important because, because, because it's, a, it's a kind of you know otherwise I couldn't do my work tomorrow as I tell people what I think should happen or whether that location is right or not. Sometimes it's a very beautiful thing where you read something somebody's written about a film that you made and you think, for whatever, in whatever way this has happened, the thing that is being said, I've had that conversation with myself and it, it's very satisfying. Uh, you know, but, but if you look at a film like... Uh, just, I have to say this because you mentioned Kubrick. Barry Lyndon's one of my favourite films. And I can't tell you... I mean, there are lots of things that Barry Lyndon is sort of about, and you, could, you can talk about them. But actually, it's just the sheer musicality of it, the aesthetic exp- experience. It goes back to that question you asked about aesthetics, and it is something that got very unfashionable for a while in you know, post the, the sort of your end of the philosophical spectrum. It was just about the... the you know, it was, it was a, a sort of a multiplication of meaning, and, and the, the whole aesthetic dimension got kind of lost. But, and then finally, not having answered any of these questions properly, <laughs> just to what the gentleman said, I mean, I don't think the image, I don't know what the fundamental unit of consciousness is. The problem of saying that it's an image is that you kind of, you need to then ask who's, you know, what is it that's watching the image? What's, what's making that image a consciously held one? And if you open the head, you won't find any images. You'll find lots and lots of activity which somehow models the world uh, you know, so I don't know what the... First, I wish I could answer that one. That would be a good one to be It's sound, too, as well. I mean, that's what yes, I was thinking. Yes, absolutely, sound. It's experiential, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Yeah. A Sorrentino soundtrack would make your life immeasurably more profound and beautiful. Yes, indeed. There's a, a way in which that would work. Francine, did you have some answers? No, um, no, <laughs> but I'm dying to... Uh, I'd love to see what the framework would be like for this imaginative way of looking I'm just really interested. It, I think it's utterly intriguing. And it seems... It does... You're right, it seems... So, such an obvious gap in some ways that there is no way of dealing with it, as increasingly also we have, you know, we have raised children who, um, who think of the world largely in terms of images and stored images. Um, definitely, yeah. Should we squeeze in two more? Que- There's a question over there, the lady on the aisle there, and then the lady uh, up there with the glasses. Thank you. Let's squeeze you in. Thank you. Hi, hello. Um, I wondered whether you felt, like all of you, um, 
What is, or is there a responsibility now to filmmakers in terms of, you talked about the, how influential filmmaking is and how we see and how we feel and how we think. And is there a responsibility on filmmakers to be mindful of that? Or should we still respect it in terms of it's simply a self-expressive art form in the way that anything else is and not the truth, just one person's experience of the truth? And that's a good question in our political climate, isn't it, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Question over there. Um, I really like how you touched on low-culture films um, because I think one of the biggest, biggest difference between uh, philosophy and film is reach. Um, I can think of quite a few filmmakers that I would consider philosopher in some sense, as in maybe Belatar or these kind of films. Uh, but I wonder if film as purely entertainment, like um, superheroes movies or uh, uh, cartoons, could maybe inspire some kind of um, pop culture pitch to philosophy and to reach yeah, bigger audiences, I guess. Any takers? Uh, well, I was just going to briefly say on, on the sort of big superhero things, the success of the last of the Wolverine films, Logan, um, with, and the way that that dealt with kind of isolation and death and loss of um, ability and uh, I think lack of being able to, lack of self-determination, as it were, I think that actually was quite a good example of a, a film that actually turned out to be really popular. People liked it. It was extremely successful. Um, and it probably did have something to say. I'm glad you mentioned Bellatar. I mean, I, I, I'm quite a fan of his films to, to a certain extent. Um, but the, the one comment I want to make about that is that he's the one filmmaker I can think of who um, uh, genuinely puts me in the place where I am when I'm generally doing philosophy. I, I, know, I, I can think of many, many films which stimulate me to think philosophically, but I can't think of very many filmmakers who... Um, who replicate that experience. I mean, I, that doesn't necessarily mean that philosophy comes out of it either, but it, I, I've always wondered whether or not he might, that, that, whether that's an interest of his. Um, he certainly drags you through it, doesn't he? He certainly drags you through it. <laughs> but, but, but your thought was about reach. And I, I, yeah, I, broad d reach, d d yes. Does Bellatar reach? No, many? no, I think it was by, by contrast with Bellatar. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, I want to just answer the question there about uh, the, does it make sense to talk about the responsibility of filmmakers and given where we are at the moment and in obvious ways, um, you know, there are lots of things to be said. I think you can only do what you're good at. And I think, so, so you have to work within that. I mean, I, I don't think I would make a very good polemical film. You know, I think Michael Moore does a better job of that, I think. But I do think about the... I do think that there's an imperative to, to stick... You know, to be humane. You know, and I, I think... Certainly when I make films, I do... There is a kind of an invitation to a kind of empathy in them. Do I think that makes... Is going to make any political difference? No. But I... I so, so I think... And I think maybe when, if I was... My younger self would have had had more grandiose ideas about the potential for art to make a difference. 
socially and politically. But the way I think about it now maybe is, you know, in the... In, um, I get from your accent that you're probably Irish like me. So mm-hmm. back in the, you know, the Dark Ages, the monks built these towers and they'd sit in them and, co- and copy out classic texts. You know, that's where some of the great ancient texts survived because of those monks sitting there while everything else was destroyed. And the only thing I can sometimes think about is you just keep doing your thing in the hope that, that, that in, in, it's a tiny, tiny piece of civilized behavior. That, you know, and, and the more of those the better, and, and that you hope that, that, that everything doesn't get so degraded that, that all of that is gone, that some of it, you know, just, just do your bit to, to live in a way and to work in a way and to communicate in a way which, which sort of respects the dignity of other people. That's about as much as I think, at the moment, I feel one can do. That's a kind of modestly hopeful note to end on, I think, and a nice note to end on. Can I... um, I'm sure you'll agree that our panellists had us at hello. Uh Um, And I'd like to remind you that the forum, in the words of Arnie, will be back over the summer. And you can follow us... (laughs) (laughs) Hours of preparation. Um, You can follow us on our Twitter feed and you can check our blog as well. Can I encourage you to lastly join me in thanking our amazing speakers? Thank Thank you.